0: We are coming this morning to our third sermon in our sermon series in the Gospel of John and we are looking picking up where we left off last Lord's Day and actually I must have given the wrong sermon text. I'm, I'm making all kinds of mistakes off the bat so be gracious. Um, but we are looking at John chapter 1, verses 35 to 51. So if you prepared and you read ahead and and you looked at that wonderful first miracle of Jesus at the wedding of Cana of Galilee, just hang on. We'll get there next week. And it is awesome. Um, and so I hope you were blessed if you read that in advance. But we are looking, and you're going to have to have a copy of Scripture. So uh, if you do have a Bible, um, either in... Hand or on your phone, I would invite you to turn to John chapter 1, beginning in verse 35, and we will be looking down to the end of the chapter to verse 51. This is the account, this is the account of the Lord Jesus calling his first disciples. Um, This is the beginning of the ministry of the Lord Jesus. We have seen most recently how John the Baptist is the forerunner, how he has gone before Jesus, how he has prepared the way for him, and and the intention of this book, and we've seen this already in in several ways, is that we would see the glory of Jesus. And this morning, we're going to see four men who come to finally see the glory of Jesus and to follow him, and they are going to become part of that apostolic band. And so we are looking at John chapter 1, beginning in verse 35, and this is God's word. The next day, again, John was standing with two of his disciples and looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him saying this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? They said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, Come, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the Word of God endures forever. Well, one of Uh, My favorite aspects of pastoral ministry is being able to interview people for new membership in a church. And uh, you might think that's an odd thing in ministry to enjoy, but one of the reasons I enjoy it is because I get to hear from those coming and joining a local church how it was that they came to know the Savior. That is vital. That is arguably the most important part of a new member interview is tell us how you came to know the Lord Jesus. And, and what's interesting is everyone's, everyone's conversion is remarkably different. I, I'm not sure that I've ever met two people who have the exact same experience in coming to know the Lord Jesus. Sometimes people have grown up in the church and they have been under the faithful ministry of the word and the gospel their entire life. And they can honestly and truly say that they had nothing spectacular happen to them but that they have always known and trusted the Lord Jesus, and as they have grown in their Christian life, they have learned to love him and trust him more and more in an increasing way and to see their need for him more. And then there are many others, and maybe you're among this group who have had experiences like me, where your conversion was more radical. You were in great darkness, you were, you were the prodigal son in the far country, and Jesus sought you when a stranger and interposed his precious blood, and you had a radical experience where he brought you from death to life, and there was no question what happened to you. And I mentioned that this morning because here in this account in John chapter 1, we have the calling and the conversion, presumably, of the first four of Jesus' disciples. And and they're all very different. Even though they're all amalgamated together, they're all very different. They're different individuals. They they are different in their personalities. There, There are so many differences about them. And then there are differences in the way they come to see the glory of Jesus and to follow him. And they are different in the way in which Jesus deals specifically with them. It's actually remarkable how much is in this passage. There is so much that we learn about ourselves, and there is so much we learn about the way the Savior calls sinners to himself. Well, before we look at this this morning, I just want us to note that John is here giving us the the picture of the beginning of the new covenant church this is how it all starts and john is the only one who gives us this account you can look at the other gospels and and they give us they give us later experiences of these same disciples you'll read about how jesus approaches them on boats and how he comes to them at different times and seasons and this is arguably the beginning of of how he begins to deal with these disciples There is a process by which the patient Savior deals with his people and calls them to himself and reveals himself to them. Now, I want us to consider this morning as we look at the calling of the disciples here, I want us to consider just two things. I want us to look at the means of Jesus's calling, the means by which he calls sinners to himself, and then I want us to consider the calling of the Savior himself, the means by which... Sinners are called to Jesus, and then I want us to consider the Savior who is calling. Well, notice that the first way by which these disciples are being called to Jesus is that they have heard John the Baptist. Now, this is, this is quite interesting, and don't miss this, because you could, you could easily just check out and miss this. Um, John the Baptist has been preaching, and he has one message. He says, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And he says it the day just before this day that we're looking at. And the first time he says it, no one responds. Don't miss that. The first time John preaches the gospel, we we don't hear of anyone responding. The next day, John is preaching the same message because he has one message to preach. And he says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world... And now, for the first time, we have disciples of John responding to that message and following the Savior. Why is that instructive to us? That's instructive because many people sit under the ministry of the gospel preached week in and week out with no effect. I remember when I was a young minister, and I often preached about justification by faith alone, and how, if we forget our justification then then we 're not going to make advancement in the Christian life because we 're going to think it 's up to us, and we 're going to slide into work's righteousness mode because we 've forgotten that we 're righteous in the Son of God by faith alone and and I, I think I preach that almost every week and uh, on one occasion, a group in this church I was pastoring had gone to New York City, and they had visited Redeemer Presbyterian Church, and they they were so excited to come back and tell me what what Tim Keller had said. And they said, you know, Tim Keller preached about justification by faith alone, and how we're justified by faith alone in Christ alone, and how if we forget our justification, we won't make advancement in the Christian life. And they said, we've never heard that. And I thought, I preach that to you every week. How have you not heard that? Now, I'm, I'm no Tim Keller, for good or ill. I'm no Tim Keller, probably for ill, much ill. But, 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 the reality is we can sit under the ministry of God's word week in and week out. We can hear the gospel preached every Sunday, and it have no effect on our lives. And then suddenly, God does something, and he uses the means of preaching and he uses that as the primary way that he calls sinners to himself. And, and ministers certainly have to take heart when they consider this, that they don't lose heart when they don't see loads of fruit being born in people's lives, and they don't see masses of converted people all of a sudden, but, but then they begin to see God doing things in the lives of the people, and they keep on preaching the gospel, because we believe and we know that this is how God calls sinners to himself. This is The main way that the kingdom of God advances. This is how men and women come to know the Savior and to see his glory. We continue to hear uh, the proclamation of that message. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world until I feel my need for the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world and the sin of my heart. Notice that... um, John continues patiently. J.C. Ryle, the great Anglican theologian and pastor, said the first time the Baptist cried, Behold the Lamb of God, no results seemed to have followed. We have to be patient. We have to be patient. We have to be patient with others. We can't force people to believe the gospel. We We can't expect everyone who has heard the gospel to have come to a full understanding of what is being proclaimed. And yet we keep on preaching. We keep on telling people about the Savior. And that is how this very first two disciples come. Notice John was standing with his two disciples. He pointed away from himself to Jesus. They heard him. And then John says they followed Jesus. And that's the end goal. John points away from himself. He doesn't point to a church building. He doesn't point to anything. He doesn't point to rituals. He doesn't point to liturgy. He points to the Savior. And they follow him. They come to him. Now, it's interesting. Um, It's not just the preaching of the gospel by which these disciples come to know who the Savior is. They come by the relational witness of those who are closest to them. Uh, This is striking. I'm not sure there's another passage in all of the Bible that so encourages us to share the gospel with those closest to us as this one. Um, in many respects, I came to know the Lord because of the witness of my parents and my sister. Um, that may be true for you. Uh, the biggest need that our relatives have is to know Jesus Christ. You know, I, I want my children to do well in life. I want them to be mature. I want them to have jobs and, and to, to do well and to use the gifts God's given them. But but more than all that, we should want our children to know Jesus. That should be the biggest thing. And you see this excitement, don't you? You see this incredible excitement as, as each disciple successively comes to know the Savior. He, he is eager to bring those closest to him to the one he has found to be the Savior so that they will know the saving grace that, that they have come to know. Notice Notice, after, after these first two disciples come, notice uh, in verse 40, one of the two who heard John speak and follow Jesus was Andrew, Simon's brother. There is certainly a principle of uh, love for others at work in here that, that Andrew loved his brother enough to tell him the most important thing. You know, if we, if we never tell people about Christ, especially in our families and those closest to us, we don't love them. We don't love them. That's the greatest, the greatest act of love and service is to tell others about the Savior. And to do so with an eagerness. He, he comes and, and notice, there, you almost get a sense of excitement in verse 41. He says, we, we have found the Messiah. Think about this. For thousands of years, a, a remnant of Jewish people were waiting for the Messiah for thousands of years that there were little pockets within the covenant people who were wondering is it now is it this child am i am i going to be the mother of the redeemer women were asking that there were there was this expectation this longing this desire when is he going to come and now in the fullness of time these brothers get to see the savior with the eyes of faith And Andrew comes with so much excitement. He says, we have found the Messiah. He's here. This is him. This is the Savior. Isn't that awesome? You know, when our hearts are dull over thoughts about the gospel and who Christ is, this is is the kind of place we need to come to. And to to have a sort of a, a renewed sense of excitement. If we know the Savior... How can we not be excited that we can say, with Andrew, to those around us, we have found the Messiah, the Christ. We found the Anointed One. We found, we found the ultimate Prophet, Priest, and King. We found the Savior. We have found the only Savior of the world. This is it. There is no one else, and we have found Him. And and Andrew comes to Simon, and he he does so uh, in a sense by first appealing to scripture they they knew the bible they knew god's word he we only know that there was a promised christ from the bible he essentially says to his brother you know all those things that the old testament prophets spoke about you know all those things moses spoke about you know all those things david spoke about you know all those things, about, you know, all those things that that the old testament was pointing to that that a christ was going to come it, we found the one the scriptures speak of um, there, is, there is a really amazing conjunction between their intellectual knowledge of the bible and now their spiritual experience of being able to see the savior with the eyes of faith isn't that awesome that's, that's the goal for us too um, it's never enough it's never enough to just know facts um, it's never enough just to know doctrinal truths. We have to have a spiritual experience in our souls. And, and you know, there is also here a beautiful principle that I don't want us to miss. Uh, in the calling of these disciples, there, there is a principle of covenantal and communal um, calling. Isn't that awesome? God works. God works. The Lord Jesus, in gathering his first disciples, begins in a home with these two brothers. There's a, there's a principle. God said, I will be a God to you and to your descendants after you. I will be your God. You will be my people. And here you see that working out in the first calling of Andrew and Peter. Um, they, they, are, they are becoming the recipients of the grace of God for the first time in their lives. and And, and God is at work in that family. That's that's an ordinary way. That's something we should long for. That's something we should be praying for fervently. We should be praying that, that everyone in our home really and truly knows the Lord Jesus. I pray that for my children often. We should be praying it for our loved ones, for aunts and uncles, for grandparents, for cousins, for co-workers. Are, are you doing that? Am I doing that? Um, that's the question. Do I pray for the conversion of those around me. That's covenantal in nature, and then it's communal in nature. It's interesting. We need one another. You can't live the Christian life in a vacuum. I had someone recently here in town tell me he didn't need to go to church because he can talk to God anywhere. And I said, well, yeah, you can talk to God anywhere, but, but the God you talk to has determined that we must live In community with one another God has chosen to use instruments people to bring other people to Christ and to keep other people close to Christ and to build each other up in Christ that's that's why we gather every Lord's Day isn't it we don't just come to listen to a guy speak we don't just come because we like a building or we like certain people we come because we need one another and we need to be building each other up in Christ so we see that principle so clearly in the means of calling. Now, secondly, and, and perhaps uh, most importantly, we see the calling of the Savior himself. Now, notice when, when, uh, when the first two disciples come to Jesus and, and they follow him. Notice verse 38. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? Now, very interesting the way the Savior works On people. Um, He doesn't just say, hey guys, glad you found me. Let's go. He he actually, and and this is frustrating to people that hate questions. By the way, some people, I've had friends that said, you know, stop asking me so many questions. Uh, Because questions reveal what's in people's hearts, don't they? And, And a lot of people don't want that revealed, but Jesus is always doing that. He says, what are you seeking? He wants to hear from them. What's inside? What's, what's motivating them? Why would they want to be following him? In a sense, he's discerning and discriminating so that they, they don't have wrong motives in coming to him. Many people have wrong motives. Well, maybe if I follow Jesus, my life will get better. Maybe, you know, my job will go well and we'll have more. And, and maybe things will turn out well for my children. And maybe, you know, maybe it's just a social notch on the belt in the south. I mean, that's a very real thing. Lots of people uh, follow Jesus with wrong motives, but not these men. And Jesus is drawing out of them what he's already doing inside of them. He's begun a work in them, and he is helping them understand who he is and the way he calls. Because at the end of the day, no one will ever really and truly follow Jesus Christ unless he does a real powerful, efficacious work of calling them in their souls. And drawing them by his grace and and Jesus is doing that and then notice and I love this they say to him rabbi they don't fully understand who he is and they say where are you staying and they're, they're saying we want to know who you are we want to be close to you so we can learn from you we want we want to be your disciples we've left John we we now are, are bound to you and and then Jesus says this and this this is maybe the most important part of this passage Jesus says to them, come and see. Now, why is that so important? Come and see. Jesus doesn't just cram a bunch of doctrine on them and say, you better believe this because it's true. You know, that's what every false religion does, by the way. They say, you better believe this because this is what our religious leaders say. It's true. We better believe what scripture says because it's true and it's God's word. But Jesus doesn't do that. He wants to help people think critically and thoughtfully about who he is. He's welcoming them to come and be with him so that they can think about who is this. He's saying come and see for yourself. Think through this for yourself. Have you ever, have you ever really thought through who Jesus is for yourself. That's, he, he says that to us this morning. What he says to Andrew, what he says to the first disciples, he says to us, he says, come and see. And so they go and they stay with him because the only way you will ever really know Jesus is if you go to him and see who he is and abide in his word and spend time with him to learn who he is. You know, later in this gospel, and Jesus will actually say something quite profound. He'll say, you know, no longer do I call you servants because a servant doesn't know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends and I have made known to you all that my father has, has said. Isn't that awesome? The Savior wants you to think of him as a friend that wants you to come and see him and be with him and learn of him. That's, that's the epicenter of what it means to be a Christian. Going and abiding with him, sitting at his feet, learning from him, and so they go and they stay with him. So, thoughtful belief is what the Savior is calling for and utilizing. Now, A.W. Pink elaborates on this. He says, Christ desired to be followed intelligently or not at all. Christ desires to be followed intelligently. Or not at all. He will not accept formal or superstitious worship. What he wants is the heart. that heart, The heart that seeks him for himself. Isn't that beautiful? He wants the heart that seeks him for who he is. Not just formality. Not just ritual. Not just a social notch on the belt. Not just because my kids may turn out better if I do this. But because I need to know him. Who he is. And I need to be with him. Now, um, there is also in this passage, there is the individual dealing. I mentioned this at the outset. Jesus doesn't deal with everybody monolithically. Uh, Sometimes we mistakenly treat others uh, that way. We think, well, if, if Christ dealt with me this way, he should be dealing with everyone else that way. Or, or if I think about this thing this way in the realm of Christianity, then, then everybody else needs to think exactly like me. Because we tend to flatten out things. We tend to lose sort of the dynamics. But here, notice, this begins with Andrew coming to Peter. Now, remember Peter. Peter's impetuous. Peter uh, uh, talks before he thinks. I'm a lot like Peter, by the way. Peter is impulsive, impulsive. Peter's always just jumping out there, and, and I don't know this, this is not in the Bible, but I'm going to go out and speculate that there were many times that Andrew was deeply annoyed by Peter, and, 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 you know, Andrew is here, he's the one that's brought his brother to Jesus, and now Jesus goes out of his way to highlight what he's going to do in Peter and not in Andrew. I never had a brother, it must be awful, sorry guys. <laughs> um, but but those relations are there, and, and, and Jesus is dealing differently. He, he's received and welcomed Andrew, but now he's dealing with Peter, and he says to Peter, your name is Simon, but it's going to be Cephas, that is, a stone, a rock. Now, there was nothing further from the truth about Peter <laughs> than, than that he was rock-like. Peter was not rock-like at all. In fact, as we look at the Gospels, Peter doesn't become rock-like until after Pentecost, at Pentecost, after the ascension of Jesus. And, and that means, this is awesome, Jesus tells Peter what he's going to do. You're going to be one of the foundation stones in the temple of God as an apostle. I'm going to do a great work in transforming you. And you almost wonder if Jesus wanted to tell him, but it's going to take a long time and I'm very patient and you know we laugh but wow praise God he is patient he's not patient forever but praise the Lord that he is patient with us Um, he's going to deal individually with Peter and it's going to take time and it's going to be a painful growing process for Peter um, we don't know much about Andrew. Jesus is also calling him and working on him and dealing with him. But, but what we do know is that Jesus is dealing with these individuals. And then notice the the second set. There there is Philip and and Philip follows Jesus the next day, verses forty three and following. And and we're told where Philip was from. He was from the same city as Andrew and Peter. But Jesus is going to deal with Philip differently than he dealt with Andrew and and Peter. And then uh, Philip is going to do the same thing that the first two disciples did in, in telling others and bringing others. He's going to go and tell Nathaniel. So there's just this residual um, witnessing to the glory of the Messiah. And now Jesus is going to do something really remarkable. He is going to deal with Nathaniel in a way that he never dealt with Andrew, Peter, or Philip. Um, as nathaniel comes to the savior any any skeptical remember jesus wants thoughtful intelligent disciples he's skeptical he says he says to uh to philip can anything good come out of nazareth um this is the most unlikely place for the savior of the world to come out of I don't know about this. And as he's coming, and and remember, Nathaniel has a different disposition than the other disciples. Very different than Peter. Nathaniel is more reflective. Jesus is going to tell him, I saw you under the tree. And no doubt he was having some kind of quiet time. I don't even think we use that phrase anymore in the church. But he's having a quiet time. And and he's meditating on God's word. And Jesus knows the devotion of his heart. And, And He's a bit distrusting. He's slow to, to draw conclusions. And, and Jesus tells him, before, before you saw me, before Philip called you, I saw you. Notice the initiation of the Savior. He sees and knows everything. That's a frightening thought. It's also a comfor- comforting thought. He knows everything about me. He knows everything about you. And he deals with Nathaniel in a very intimate personal Savior-like way, he said, before Philip called you, I saw you under the tree. I know what kind of person you are. He said, Jesus said, behold, an Israelite, indeed, a true believer. An Israelite, indeed, a true disciple uh, in whom there's no deceit, that he was a sincere believer already. And Jesus is telling him, I know who you are. I know what your heart is like. And, And Nathaniel, because he is a devoted man, And because he does have a right heart, believes very quickly that Jesus is who he said he was. He says, behold, you are. You are. Notice. He said, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. That's a title you don't give out to anyone. That's a title you only give to one person in the universe. The incarnate God. Behold, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Now, I love Jesus' response. I don't want to leave us here reflecting on this last section. Because on one hand, you could, you could think this passage could end with Nathaniel's great confession of faith that Jesus is the Son of God, the King of Israel. And that, and that would be, it would feel like that would be suitable. But Jesus goes on and he says, he says, do you now believe? Do you believe because I told you I saw you under the tree? You're going to see so many more things. Your heart is going to be enthralled with what I'm going to show you about myself. You're going to see, as it were, and he appeals back to Jacob's dream where he sees the ladder Let down from heaven and the angels of God ascending and descending. And Jesus says to Nathaniel, you're going to see that I'm that ladder, That I am the God-man. That I am the only mediator between God and man. That I have, as it were, one foot in heaven and one foot on earth. And I am the only way into the presence of God. And you're going to see the angels of God ascending and descending on me. Now remember, Jesus' ministry is going to be attended by angels. When he was in the wilderness, an angel strengthened him after he was tempted. Um, When he was in the garden, an angel strengthened him after he was in agony of soul. And when he was risen from the dead, angels... We're at his tomb bearing witness to his glory that's at the end of this book when we get to the end of this book what jesus tells nathaniel comes to full fruition when the angels at the tomb bear witness that he is risen that he is not here and that he is the savior of the world they they would come to see angels ascending and descending on the lord jesus throughout his ministry now why is that important Well, that's there for us. Two reasons. The more we follow Jesus, the more we do what these disciples did, and we come and we see him, the more he shows us of himself. Now, if you ever get to a point in your Christian life where you feel like, I don't need any more, or I know it all, that's a very dangerous place to be. There's always more. The Savior will always show you more of himself. It's also important because we've talked about the testimony of John the Baptist. We've talked about the testimony of the spirit at the baptism. We now see the witness of the first disciples, and then we're going to get the witness of the angels to who he is. And that means we are presented with so much evidence about who Jesus is that when we hear him say, "Come and see," we should flee to him as quick as we can, and say, "Lord, show me more of your glory. Show me more. I need to see more." I want to encourage you this morning. Maybe you've never, maybe you've never come and seen the Savior. Uh, come and see. Come and see him. He says to you this morning, "Come and see." Follow me. I'll show, you, I'll show you wondrous things. Maybe you've been a Christian for 40, 50 years. And, and look, I know it in my own soul. Um, we, can, we can grow lax. We can, we can lose a sense of astonishment. The Savior would say to you this morning, there is, there is so much more I want to show you. There's so much more that, that I want you to see. There's so much more I want to enthrall your soul with. And that's the end of this, isn't it? Is that our souls would be enthralled with the Savior. Like we were when we were first converted. May God do that for us, wherever we are, in our spiritual pilgrimage this morning. Let him who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, we acknowledge that we need to see more of your Son, Lord, our hearts are often dull, our eyes are often dim, we do not meditate on your Son in your Word as we ought, and so this morning we pray that you would revive us, we pray that you would renew in those of us who have trusted in you, Lord Jesus, that excitement and zeal to know you, to see your glory, to know again afresh how you have called us how you deal with us, how you work individually in the lives of your people. We pray, Lord Jesus, that you would make us to see the wondrous things that attest to who you are as they are revealed in your word. We pray that we would leave this place with renewed joy and a greater zeal to follow you, to come and see, to stay with you, and and to learn of you. And so, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, would you accomplish that in the souls of every man and woman and boy and girl present here this morning. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.